Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is February 25th, 2016. We have with us today Dr. Jay Cohn, and we're going to be talking about heart disease. Dr. Jay Cohn, he is currently a professor of medicine and the director of the Rasmussen Center for Cardiovascular Disease, Disease Prevention at the University of Minnesota. We're going to be talking about his recent book, which is a scientific memoir, and it's called Saving Sam, Drugs, Race, and Discovering the Secrets of Heart Disease. I have read his book, and it's absolutely, it's so informative and it's so good that I encourage all my listeners to get a copy. Cardiovascular disease is something that we're all touched by and the information will will really inform you. Let's bring Dr. Jay Cohn onto our show now. Thank you for joining us today. Good evening, Denise. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start my show out by asking my guest, how did you get on the path that you're on today? Well, it's probably a complex question. I went to medical school. I guess that was the first step in becoming a cardiologist, and uh, I was always fascinated. Well, I've been fascinated by mechanisms of disease and understanding the progression of disease. So that's what led me into cardiology, which is such a dramatically physiologically oriented field in that you need to understand the way the blood vessels and the heart function. And that led me into cardiology, into dealing with patients with advanced disease, and now into a real dedication to preventing disease from progressing, identifying it early, and intervening to prevent people from getting advanced disease. So that's the, that's sort of, the, in a nutshell, what's led me to my career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've served served for 22 years as the chief of cardiology at the University of Minnesota. So um, your dedication well, I was, is... Yeah, I was a chief of cardiology there for 22 years, but uh, and it's amazing. That's now, uh, I guess, 20 years ago that I stepped down and uh, dedicated myself to prevention. About your book, Saving Sam, The Drugs, Race, and Discovering the Secrets of Heart Disease. Um, Dr. Cohn, what um, what led you to writing this book? Well, I, I became uh, really enthralled with the changing patterns of management and understanding of the disease during my career, beginning... Uh, when I graduated medical school in 1956 uh, to the time I I began writing this book uh, four or five years ago. And the changes had been so dramatic, and I I recognized that uh, many of those changes had resulted from investigations that I had done uh, trying to understand how disease progressed and developing therapies that changed the disease progression that altered the way we manage disease, I thought understanding that uh, for the lay public would would uh, help them to understand their own potential problem. And uh, I went back to the very first patient I saw 
as an intern in 1956 whose name was Sam. And that really became the focal point of my book because Sam manifested all of the, the problems that we have come to understand but did not understand in 1956 so that his treatment was totally inadequate. We did everything we possibly could to save Sam, but we failed. And had Sam presented with the same series of events in uh, in 2015 or 16, he would have uh, been treated entirely differently, he would have survived and lived a long life and I thought that it was a message for everyone to understand how we have changed the face of heart of management of heart disease uh, in that 50-year uh, period of time. And why don't you inform us as to how that has changed? Well, in, in 1960, if uh, you went into the hospital with a heart attack, your chances of getting out alive were about... Uh, three and four, so probably 25% of people who had heart attacks died in the hospital. You were in the hospital for six weeks and uh, being nursed back to gradually getting up out of bed and uh, months and months of recuperation before one could return to anything near a normal lifestyle and a very high subsequent mortality over the ensuing few years. Today, you have a heart attack, you go in the hospital, they rush you to the catheterization laboratory, they open up the artery which has been come blocked, uh, you go home in two or three days, and you're back to work the next day. And people have become so complacent about heart attacks that they think that they're benign little events and you, you, your risk of dying in the hospital is more like 1% or 2% rather than 25%. And uh, it turn, turns out to be what is thought to be a benign disease, but it is not. And uh, the focus on preventing that from occurring in the first place is uh, where I've put my emphasis in recent years because I think we've lost track of the importance of keeping people healthy rather than letting them have a heart attack, even though the management of the heart attack is now remarkably more effective than it was uh, 50 years ago. So what do you recommend in terms of prevention? Well, in our center in Minnesota, we have an evaluation program which takes healthy people who think they're, they're well but mm -hmm. might worry about their potential for future heart disease, perhaps uh, family history, perhaps uh, their cholesterol is high, perhaps... Uh, they're just worried, and they uh, come in and be, and we screen them for early disease. And we find that in about a third of them, they have distinct and progressive early disease that is likely to lead to a heart attack uh, years later. And our goal is to intervene to protect them from progressing so that the disease uh, does not advance any further and that they don't have their heart attack and they should therefore be able to live to our goal is to keep people healthy until age 100 from a cardiovascular standpoint and I think that is doable if we identify disease early and intervene with therapy that we know can protect people from its progression. Now when you when you um, talk about seeing them Obviously, you run blood tests, but what other forms of testing is involved? Well, there are a couple of blood tests, but mainly we're looking at the health of the arteries and of the heart. So we have a number of tests that we do. They're all accomplished in one hour. They're all non-invasive. They require no x-ray, uh, and they're all done by one technologist in one room. So it's not a burdensome thing to go through. And those 10 tests give us a, a fairly extensive understanding of the health of the arteries and the heart. And if your arteries and your heart are normal, you can't have a heart attack. Uh, you can't have heart failure. You can't die from cardiovascular disease. You can't have a stroke. And uh, if you have 
abnormalities of the arteries, we have therapy which can dramatically slow its progression and keep people from having those uh, so-called morbid events. So it's now, a whole different approach to, to uh, understanding and treating heart disease before it becomes symptomatic. When you refer to non-invasive tests, mm -hmm. do you use ultrasound to check yes, the uh, heart use, and the arteries? We, we use ultrasound of the arteries in the neck. We use ultrasound of the heart. Uh, we put a uh, we measure a waveform from the artery at the at the wrist from the radial artery that, that generates a waveform that we can analyze for the health of the arterial system. Uh, we take a photograph of the retina of the eye, which visualizes the small arteries in the back of the eye. Uh, we do a urine test uh, for protein, which is a early marker for small artery disease in the kidney. Uh, we, are, we do all those tests. We put people on a treadmill and measure their blood pressure response to a modest workload on the treadmill. These are all very sensitive measures of the health of the arteries and the heart, which are not being routinely performed, and uh, therefore people are not getting that evaluation. If they go to their primary care provider, they'll be given, uh, they'll be have their blood pressure measured at rest, and they'll have their cholesterol measured, and the doctor will, on the basis of those two tests, say, oh, you're fine or you're not fine. And those two tests are very imprecise, not terribly useful in defining the presence of disease. Is your center the only one that performs these these tests for heart disease? Well, we're we're gradually expanding. We have a center in Sarasota, Florida, which has been doing these tests for the last half dozen years. Uh, we have a center in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Louisiana, which have been performing the tests. And we're going to be opening a uh, center in uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, probably in the next month or two, which are also, is also going to provide these, this testing. So the concept is gradually expanding around the country. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, are these centers all associated with um, your, uh, your center, or are you just training well, they, They've people? all adopted our technology, and we've licensed them to use it. So that is correct. Okay. Okay. All right, so now let's get back to the book. Mm -hmm. Let's talk some some more about the content of your book. So you started out with Sam. He was your very patient, and just recapping what what you um, you told us, he um, he died. You weren't able to save him, you know, back in the 1960s. So let's move on from there. Well, Sam uh, came in the hospital with a heart attack, and uh, in those days, as I described, uh, there was no treatment. You put him to bed, and uh, he began to uh, uh, recuperate and appeared to be doing fine and has spent his six weeks in the hospital, as was the tradition in those days, and went home apparently fine. So from the best as best we could understand, he was going through a normal recovery from a heart attack. The problem was that because we had no techniques to visualize the heart in those days, there was no ultrasound in, in 1950s. Ultrasound for doing echo, so-called echocardiograms didn't develop until many years later. So we had no way of visualizing the heart, and what was happening to his heart over the next few months, the next six months, was a process that we now call remodeling, in which the heart enlarges without anybody knowing it, especially the patient who seems to be doing fine, was suffering from this remodeling process. We now know how to stop that remodeling process with medication 
but we didn't mm-hmm. know anything about it in those days. And he came back. Is in it the genetic? Hospital. No, it is not genetic. It's a response to the initial injury to the heart. The heart gets an injury, and it initiates a process of remodeling, which makes the heart enlarge, which can be pr- protected against. Uh, we can use medication that will protect it from the remodeling, and then the, the adverse effects of the remodeling do not take place. But in those days, we didn't know about that. So six months later, Sam came in the hospital with what is called severe heart failure because mm. his pumping ability of the heart had failed because it had remodeled. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one understood that at that time. Nobody understood what the process was. And I tried to get doctors, faculty members from Harvard, which is where I was doing my internship, uh, to explain to me what had happened, what was happening, and no one understood it. And I realized that that, that was the beginning of my recognition that that we needed to study things like that in order to understand them because no one understood them. And that Dr. sort of Cohen? began my career. Uh, when when you say that um, the heart enlargement was due to um, a response to initial injury of the heart, what type yes. of injury? I well, mean, you, in pro- you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know in. Oh, okay. Okay. So the heart attack is the injury. And okay. uh, at that time, all we thought about physical. was that the heart attack has occurred and we'll just let the heart heal. But if you leave the heart to its own devices, unfortunately, it starts to enlarge. And uh, that leads to a downhill course that uh, becomes irrevocable if it gets severe. Well,. I know of individuals who have enlarged hearts, but they haven't had a heart attack. So what might that be caused from? Well, there are other causes of enlarged hearts. There's cardiomyopathy, which means that the heart has had some form of infection or even a congenital abnormality that has affected the heart muscle. Uh, High blood pressure enlarges the heart. Uh, There are valve problems which can enlarge the heart. So there are many things that enlarge okay. the heart, but if you have a heart attack, that is what we now call myocardial infarction, and that damage to the heart initiates this process of, of remodeling in which the heart enlarges. Interesting. Really interesting. How does cholesterol relate to heart problems? Well, it's a good question. Uh, if you read the the lay press, you would think that cholesterol is the cause of heart disease, and mm-hmm. it's far from the truth. Uh, it is true that the higher your cholesterol level, or particularly what we call the bad cholesterol, which is LDL cholesterol, uh, that's low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, that's the, what we call bad cholesterol, and uh, there's a general consensus that that's an evil to have a high LDL and that you therefore need to take medication to reduce it or go on a diet to reduce it because you think it's led to, people are led to believe that the cholesterol is a cause of heart disease, but it is far from the truth. Yes, you have to have cholesterol in your blood in order to develop a plaque or a cholesterol accumulation in the wall of your artery, which leads to heart attacks and strokes. That is true. But that cholesterol that gets into the wall of the artery occurs almost as frequently in people with a normal cholesterol level as with people with a high cholesterol level. So the level of cholesterol is only a small player in the risk for heart attack. So yes, we do give we do uh, uh, insist on statin therapy. The the statin drugs are a remarkable class of medications which are now available. There's half a dozen of them on the market, and they're very cheap. They're generic drugs for the most part, and therefore they need not be expensive. They are dramatically effective in lowering cholesterol levels, but also in protecting people from heart attacks. 
and in fact their protection is probably goes beyond their ability to lower cholesterol. They do other things that protect the artery wall as well. Uh, so the whole story about cholesterol and heart attack is really overemphasized in the lay press because it isn't uh, the whole story. It's only a small part of the story. It's really interesting. But as a patient, how would you know if you, you know, I mean, if, if a physician says you need to go into statins, you're not going to really argue with them over it, even um, if it's not really needed. Well, uh, but but maybe uh, let me make that even clearer. The the statin okay. drugs absolutely are protective from heart attacks, but their okay. protection is just as great if your cholesterol level is normal than if your cholesterol level is high. So most of the people that I treat with a statin in our in our uh, center where we use statin drugs very commonly when we identify early disease through our testing. The vast majority of the patients we treat with a statin have cholesterol levels within normal limits, okay. levels that their doctor would say, your cholesterol is fine. Well, it isn't okay. the cholesterol level. It's the fact that they have disease in the artery that means they need to be on a statin drug which will lower cholesterol further, but more importantly, will protect the artery from the plaque growth that is what causes the heart attacks. So ah, I'm not saying theory. that statins, statins are, not, are terribly important protectives, but they're just as protective when your cholesterol is normal as when your cholesterol is high. Um, I, I have heard and this is an interesting question for you, that when you're on statin drugs, it depletes your body of CoQ10. Well, co uh, there, there are side effects to, to statin drugs, uh, often overemphasized in, in the lay press and uh, mm -hmm. more concern than is real in many people, but there is no question that some people do get muscle aches and pains when they take a statin drug. There is some evidence, not terribly well documented, that CoQ10 can protect against the side effects from statin drugs. So I have many patients who do take CoQ10. You get it at a health food store. They insist that the CoQ10 helps them. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of studies that have been done with CoQ10 and none of them have really dramatically shown that CoQ10 has a favorable effect, but uh, it's hard to dissuade people from using it, and uh, I, I think that uh, on net it's okay if they want to take CoQ10, but it isn't really critical in, in the effectiveness of, of the statin drugs. Okay, good. I've always been curious about that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You see so so much in the media. So what um, cardiovascular problems um, would you consider uh, that need more research in the future? What types? Well, I think all cardiovascular disease uh, is still un un uh, uncertainly the mechanisms are still uncertain for many cardiovascular diseases. And I think what's happened, Denise, over the recent years is that our aggressive therapy has become so effective that uh, interventionalists who put balloons in arteries, who put in valves, who uh, uh, do surgical procedures, who put in devices that are very expensive uh, and uh, remarkably effective in at least a small group of people with severe disease. Those individuals have become so dedicated to treatment that mm -hmm. they have lost some of their interest in understanding the mechanisms. 
Mm-hmm. If your heart mm-hmm. fails and you have a pump available that you can put into the patient's and replace his heart with a pump, you're not so interested any longer in how the heart developed the failure. You're dedicated to putting in the pump. And Mm -hmm. understanding Mm -hmm. how disease progresses is how we've made so many advances in cardiology over the last 50 years. And those advances came from studying and understanding the mechanisms of the disease and what caused it to progress, what the hormonal state was, what what the uh, blood vessel wall does, how it interacts with clots and the blood flowing through it, what it what causes the vessel to constrict, what causes the heart muscle to not contract as forcefully as it did, what causes the remodeling of the heart muscle, all those things we've kind of touched on are very important to to developing a new understanding and ways of not only treating disease, but preventing it from progressing. Mm -hmm. And I think the focus has become so dramatically shifted to treatment strategies, which, by the way, are very remunerative uh, for hospitals, for device manufacturers, for doctors, they get paid very well for these aggressive procedures, and unfortunately, that has uh, veered them away from further understanding the mechanism of disease because they're so good at treating the end stage of the disease. Oh, so, uh, it's really true. I think um, that we have true. to refocus ourselves on understanding disease and maybe protecting people early on from its its progression so that they never do get sick and never need these devices. Oh, I absolutely agree. And just think what it would do overall um, in our health system because the expense well, that's right. is extraordinary. But, you know, one, unfortunately, Denise, no one ever got paid for preventing a disease. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. get paid for treating disease. So mm-hmm. the doctors of today are focused on treating disease for which they get reimbursed. Uh, mm-hmm. Preventing disease is not really one of the real targets for their effort. Have you uh, run across what the statistics are for uh, pacemakers? Yes. Uh, in regard to what? Uh, well, the implementation of them, um, you know, I mean, they're surgically um, inserted into... Yes. Well, how many people on an annual basis? Uh, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I'm not sure I can give you a figure, but pacemakers, of course, especially with our aging population where the uh, the conducting system of the heart, it's an electrical system that uh, it's like any other system. With age, it begins to decline in function, and the pacemaker may lose its ability to maintain a regular rhythm in the heart. And uh, we have pacemakers available now, and as the population ages, the need for these becomes even greater. Uh, These are Mm -hmm. remarkably uh, remarkably able now to support what used to be an electrical failure of the heart and now no longer is so. Uh, We have defibrillators which go in and uh, Mm -hmm. protect the patient from fibrillation, which was the major cause of sudden death. And if we can identify people who are at risk for that problem, they can put in a defibrillator and protect them. So we have absolutely wonderful therapeutic devices available. Uh, I would like them not to be needed because we can keep people healthy until they're 100 without them. But they are there, and we are. I'm thankful that they're available when we need them. Mm-hmm. Mm, I am too. Now, you you devoted a chapter to hypertension in your book, and right. you um, you talk about how two thirds of people over the age of 60 have hypertension. That is a huge number of people. Well, it is. Because that was in two, 2010 data, but yeah. It, it is a huge number, and it reflects the fact that as we age, the the systolic blood pressure, the high number when you get your blood pressure checked, goes up with age. And 
when people are over the age of 70 or 80, they almost almost invariably develop a rise in their systolic blood pressure. we call that hypertension now, and uh, we often treat it. Uh, I, th- I think we make an error in, in uh, using the word hypertension to define people with a very specific level of blood pressure because when you put people in that category, uh, the older they get, the higher the, the incidence of hypertension and it may just be a, a phenomenon of aging, not really a disease. So the disease should be defined by something other than the blood pressure alone. And I have been fighting that battle with my colleagues in the hypertension field for a couple of decades, uh, trying to uh, trying to convince them that we should move beyond using the blood pressure as the sole diagnostic test to define what is called hypertension. Hypertension Mm -hmm. exists, in my view, in many people whose blood pressure is less than the traditional level of 140, which is the level which we usually use to define hypertension. The the systolic pressure, our high number uh, over 140, is how we define hypertension. Uh, mm-hmm. I find many people with blood pressures of 130 who have all the vascular, that is the artery abnormalities associated with hypertension, will go on and have heart attacks and strokes even though their blood pressure is not above 140. And I like oh to gosh. call that hypertension even though the blood pressure is not elevated. There are mm. other people with blood pressures of 150 who are in their 70s or 80s, who have none of the vascular abnormalities that are associated with hypertension, and I would just as soon not call them hypertensive. So using blood pressure as the sole tool to diagnose hypertension, I think, is misguided. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm no, hopeful that's a really, that's that we can... Excellent point. We can gradually evolve beyond just the blood pressure. It's not an adequate guide to whether you're sick or well. Yeah, and when and when you refer to using something else besides that, I assume you're talking about ultrasound. I'm talking about the series of tests that we do, for instance. Exactly. And I, I'm exactly. Not, uh, Out of which those, ultrasound is is some of ultrasound them. Ultrasound is one of those, right? Uh, Right, I, I don't. Right. I certainly don't want to profess that we have the only way to do that. There's a whole variety of tests available. We've chosen these ten because uh, that we do in our center because they can all be done in one hour, but in one room. But there's other ways of assessing the health of the arteries in the heart, and I'd much rather assess the health of of the cardiovascular system mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. than just measure the blood pressure, which by itself is a pretty poor guide to whether you have healthy arteries or unhealthy arteries. Yeah, and you do talk about it in your in your book, you know, stiffening of the I arteries. Do, uh, and certainly, uh, of course you do. Strong believer in, in uh, moving beyond the end stage of the disease, which is where Sam started, and it began the whole quest, which is mm-hmm. still ongoing. It's not over yet. We're still we're <laughs> still searching for better ways to understand this remarkable disease. That we have to remember uh, that half the American people are going to die from a cardiovascular event, and we're very mm-hmm. complacent about it. Nobody seems to get mm-hmm. too excited about it. You mentioned the word cancer. People are even afraid to use the term. They they call it the big C, because they're so <laughs> uh, they're so petrified by the idea of cancer. Well, cancer kills many fewer people than does heart disease, and yet our emphasis on oh my God, we got to pre- prevent cancer, uh, is so much greater than the emphasis on preventing heart disease. It's hard to understand why 
the public has not been as as excited about protecting people from heart disease as they are about protecting mm. people from cancer. Now, I'm curious if if um, a patient were to come to your center and wanted to have um, your protocol, is it mm-hmm. covered by insurance? Yes, it is. Uh, our patients all get insurance coverage. The vast majority of insurance uh, uh, policies cover the, the cardiovascular screening that we do, cardiovascular evaluation that we do, if there's a good reason to have it done. And most of these mm-hmm. people, we there, there's a, a rationale, whether it's a family history or some other manifestation that makes them concerned. Okay. So I, I, would, I you know I don't know the expense of all these, but I imagine it could be a little pricey. Yes, uh, the testing, if uh, the insurance coverage for it is probably about a thousand dollars and uh uh that's an adequate reimbursement for the methodologies that we use uh if people have to pay out of pocket it would be more than that but we uh we don't charge people uh, uh more than that and usually insurance picks it up medicare picks it up so we've been very satisfied with our reimbursement Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm hopeful that at some point you open up um, some centers on the West Coast, you know, California. Well, we're moving in that direction. Denver is as far west as we've gone. The, the next site so far. will probably be Texas. We we have plans to move into western Texas. And uh, then there is some talk about California, so that gets you to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Oh, I certainly want to know when that takes place. Yeah, these these are called heart saver clinics, so you can always go online and look up heart savers, and uh, hopefully find uh, the heart savers nearest you. Oh, good. Great, 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 great. Um. What would you say are the percentage of people that actually have heart attacks from blood clots? I don't know well, if that would heart be... Attacks, the, 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 the defi- definition of the word heart attack is obviously pretty crude because it can mm-hmm. be used for um, many conditions, but the medical definition of heart attack is myocardial infarction. And that right. is the standard uh, disease caused by a clot in a coronary artery. And that's why the people get rushed to the catheterization laboratory uh, in order to, to get that clot extracted or at least to bypass the clot with a balloon that opens up the artery. And uh, mm-hmm. the emphasis in hospitals, uh, you may have heard the term uh, door-to-balloon time. Well, no, door I haven't. Door to balloon time is the time it takes for a patient to enter the hospital emergency department, usually by ambulance, and how long it takes them to get that patient from, if documented that that patient is having a myocardial infarction, and get that patient to the laboratory and open up the coronary artery with a balloon. And uh, what do you you think the the time duration is from arrival at the hospital to having that artery open with a balloon in the coronary artery? What is the dramatic time interval that is allowed to have that happen? 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Mm. 90 minutes. So from the moment that person arrives in the hospital, the hospital's challenge is to get that patient into the laboratory, a doctor in the laboratory ready for the patient, putting in a balloon, opening up that artery within 90 minutes. And that means day or night, whether it's 6 in the morning or 3 in the morning or 11 at night, that hospital has to be prepared to get that patient into the from the emergency room up to the laboratory and 
have have the catheter in the artery and balloon opening that artery within 90 minutes, which is a challenge. Uh, <laughs> I'll say. And you you can imagine it is the, the the teamwork that's required, and the expense of maintaining the facility to allow that to happen is considerable. But that 90 minutes is the critical time frame because the longer that clot sits there, the more irreparable damage is being done to the heart muscle. Uh, uh. And the sooner you can open up that artery, the quicker you get what we call reperfusion and blood supply returns to the muscle and the muscle recovers. So the door-to-balloon time is really the key the key factor once a heart attack occurs. And, uh, of course, part of that relates to getting the patient to the hospital, too, because there's an interval between the development of symptoms mm-hmm. and getting to the door of the hospital, which is, which is uh, uh, maybe a long variable. And that's why, uh, hopefully, it occurs quickly enough that the damage to the heart muscle is minimal. But that's changed our whole approach to heart disease. When Sam came in, in 1956, uh, there was no rush to do anything with Sam. He just was put to bed, mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. his heart muscle was allowed to die. And because he mm-hmm. died, the heart remodeled, and uh, he had all his subsequent problems because the heart remodeled without our knowing it. So now we try to protect people from uh, from the damage to the heart muscle by opening the artery very quickly. Now, what I'd like to see is that, that you shouldn't get a clot and you shouldn't have a myocardial infarction. Mm-hmm. That's even better. To me, that's better. But it doesn't generate yes. any revenue for the hospital or the doctor when you when you protect people from having the event. Mm-hmm. But we're putting much more emphasis in dealing with the event than we are in preventing the event, and uh, that's the point I think I was making earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you've joined in late to our show, we're talking with Dr. Jay Cohn about heart disease. Is is a poor diet and a lack of exercise the main cause of heart disease? Well, if you read the if you read the uh, the news every day, you will find story after story sort of implying that that's the case. And some of our our uh, organizations, like the American Heart Association and the public uh, health agencies, emphasize how much heart disease uh, is call is caused by your lifestyle. And if you'd only eat better and exercise more and keep mm-hmm. your weight down, you would be protected from heart disease. That's nonsense, unfortunately. Oh, uh, my gosh, really? Uh, I, I, it's not that I advocate slovenly behavior. Uh, I think keeping your weight <laughs> <course> down <laughs> and exercise is, is very good for it's, you. It's, it, yes, but, it is. But the, the disease which is... Uh, is initiated and progresses during your lifetime is largely inherited. And, oh, my uh, gosh. So uh, I use an analogy, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw an analogy at you, Denise. All right. You can discard it if you, if you find it uh, not helpful. No. But <laughs> <laughs> my view is that, when, that you are born into a car driving on, uh, on the highway. It's the highway of life. And at the end of the road is a cardiovascular morbid event which will kill you, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke. It's your uh-huh. blood vessel and your heart which will, have, which will fail if something else doesn't happen to you beforehand. And the speed, the speed of the car on that highway is is determined largely by your heredity. You're born with a genetic, a genomic profile, mm-hmm. which sets sets the speed of progression of your cardiovascular disease. So the more the more it, the more rapidly it progresses, the more quickly you reach the end of the road, 
and have your morbid event. Now, if you eat a bad diet, and by a bad diet, that not so much fat, it's, it's carbohydrate is probably the worst thing. Uh, if you gain weight, if you are, don't exercise, uh, certainly if you smoke, uh, you accelerate the rate in which that car is going down the highway. But if you don't do all those bad things, your car is still going down the highway at its <laughs> at its at its rate set by by uh, uh, your genomics. And how do you slow the car, Denise? How do you slow the car? You slow the car with drugs that we have developed. That no, are no, effective no, no. breaking. To, they are you, effective you breaking devices. What, you need to qualify what kind of drugs. <laughs> well, the, the statin drugs that we talked about are probably the most effective uh, right. drugs that drugs that uh, block the renin-angiotensin system. There are a group of drugs called ACE inhibitors, and there are a group of drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers. They also put a break on the car. So those drugs mm-hmm. if you if you introduce them at an early stage of your 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 uh uh trip you can slow the car <laughs> down and the car won't reach the end of the road until you're 100 years old and that's our goal. Our goal is to do that. I don't know if that analogy helps any but that's the I one I've been wonderful. using recently. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just great. <coughs> I love it. Well, I think that's a a, a great place to to end our show. Um, why don't you um, tell the listeners where they can purchase your book, and again where you practice, and then if you have a website, that would be also very good for them to have. Well, the the latter is probably uh, we we have a we have a website for our program, which is called cardiovascular disease prevention dot org and uh on there you will find our uh Rasmussen Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention described. So that is on okay. that is on the website. Uh, wonderful. The 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 book call is Saving Sam and you gave the title of it. It's uh, Saving Sam Drugs, Race and Discovering the Secrets of Heart Disease. Uh, it's available on Amazon, and it can be, it's an e-book or it's in print version, and uh, I hope you'll go to Amazon and, and pick up a copy of it. I haven't looked at it lately to see what they're charging for it, but it's uh, it's a bargain, whatever the cost is. Uh, and, True. Uh, I am, it is. I, I am the professor of medicine and director of the Rasmussen Center, at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So uh, uh, our program is certainly active there, and anyone who wants to uh, come to the Rasmussen Center and get evaluated in Minneapolis, we're delighted to uh, welcome you. And if you go on our website, cardiovasculardiseaseprevention.org, you will get the information about how to reach us. And the uh, clinics that are uh, available are called Heart Savers Clinics. Heart Savers Clinics are going to be uh, opening uh, in your neighborhood soon, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the moment, they're in Minneapolis only, but uh, uh, there, but there are affiliates of our program in Sarasota, Florida, Florida at Sarasota Memorial Hospital uh, in Atlanta and. Uh, and Winnipeg, Canada, we do have some affiliates there who are operating our program. Oh, in Winnipeg, Canada. Oh, that's good to know. All right. But those are well, independent, uh, independent clinics, whereas the ones will will be opening. Hopefully, the Heart Savers clinics are basically our own clinics that we'll be operating. Do you think? What's the timing of that? Maybe six months, a year. Well, the the Denver uh, clinics are supposed to open within the next month or two, so hopefully that'll be operating uh, uh, long before the others, and then we'll gradually expand to 
other places as uh, as as we develop the okay. programs elsewhere. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jay Cohn. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate the time that you took out of your busy schedule, and well, um, educating us is is really a privilege on our part. Well, thank you, Denise. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I've been I'm delighted to have uh, participated. All right. Thank you very much. Right. Good night. Bye bye. All right, listeners, we've had a a really educational show today about heart disease. I encourage all of you to um, get a hold of uh, Dr. Jay Cohn's book. Again, his book is called Saving Sam, Drugs, Race, and Discovering the Secrets of Heart Disease. It's a a very thorough book on, um, you know, the causes of heart disease and, more importantly, how to prevent it in the first place. Please join us again next Thursday. Um, I welcome all of you to join us, and until then, be healthy. Bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have, and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?